I'm Jonathan Mosen, and in Mosen at Large, the show that's got the blind community talking, the science is in. Meditation has considerable benefits to your health and well-being. But what's involved in meditation, and how do you get started? I'll tell you about my own meditation journey and what it's done for me. Mosen at Large Podcast. An email from Malaysia inspired me to put this episode together. It's a request I've had from several people for some years now, going back as far as the Mosin Consulting days, in fact, when some people asked me to put a book together on this subject. The email reads, Hi Jonathan, Kevin from Malaysia here. Hope this email finds you well. I always enjoyed your thoughts on meditation and mindful living. The episode with the FitMind founder was so eye-opening, I started to use it often. Maybe I've missed it, but have you done an episode or series detailing the story of your meditation journey, sources and tools that you benefited from along the way, and some books and life hack recommendations for new meditators like me? It will be great to hear from a blind meditator point of view on the tools and resources that are useful for us in mindful living. So here we go, and thank you for the email. First, let's begin by having me set some expectations. You know, there was a common phrase you'd find on web pages during the early days of the World Wide Web. It seemed like every other website that you visited offered the disclaimer, this website is under construction. That phrase popped into my head when I started thinking about how to answer this question about my self-care choices, because... I feel like I'm very much under construction. Of course, it never used to be that way. Actually, I wish I'd landed a CEO job when I was 18 because I knew everything then. (laughs) I've lived an active life like many people with successes and failures and triumphs and tragedies, took some deliberate investigative and life-changing steps along the way, and now I feel like I can be proud of my progress, that I will remain a seeker while finally getting to the point in my life when I can accept that I'm okay the way I am. Yet answering this question honestly really requires me to be open and a bit vulnerable, but I'm prepared to do it because I received some truly moving correspondence after the podcast episode on ketogenic transformation, and I hope that this might have similar value to some. But I am very aware that I don't have all the answers. So I hope this episode piques your interest enough to explore the subject further on your own. Anyone who's listened to me for any length of time knows that the Beatles have had a profound influence on my life. Even as a kid, I was fascinated by the Beatles story, a story that taught me that even though I was growing up in a working-class family where no one to that point had gone on to university, If I had talent, worked hard, and had a little bit of luck, I could be successful. Meditation features in the Beatles story. George Harrison introduced the Beatles to Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, and all four ended up attending a meditation retreat in India. As a kid, Sgt. Pepper was my favourite album, but I did often used to get up and skip George's track, Within You, Without You. It was weird and boring to me. And since I had a vinyl copy of Sgt. Pepper, skipping it took a lot of effort since I had to lift the needle from the LP as a blind person trying to guess where the next track was, which was when I'm 64. When internet streaming came along in the 1990s, I remember being able to tune into a lecture from the Maharishi Mahishyogi, and as a Beatles fan, I was really intrigued to be able to do that, but it was too spiritual for me. As an atheist... I was sceptical of anything that seemed like religious rituals or claims without basis. But meditation and other self-improvement techniques were waiting for me when I was ready for them. Like many people, it took being in crisis and being at rock bottom for me to turn my receiver on. While I don't believe that we are hostage to nature or nurture, which is incredibly empowering to believe, I do think that certain things come naturally to us and other things, while not impossible to achieve, might require much deeper work. As a father of four, it's always fascinated me how my children's innate personality traits were there from birth. As for me, I've always had a natural aptitude for writing, 
public speaking, technology and leadership. I was the high school kid who managed to get myself out of PE class because the teachers needed my help with the latest computer tech. I've seen others struggle with mastering technology that is inherently intuitive to me. And that doesn't make me more intelligent or them thick. It's just a skill I have in that particular area. And on the other hand, I'm not a natural cook. I'm not particularly handy around the house. And I don't think that I was born a wise soul. I've met people who are. You just know that they have life under control. I was also born a sensitive soul. So that's a pretty challenging set of attributes to have in one person. Although it's not uncommon for creative people, and I count myself in this category. You only need to look at the musicians, the artists, the comedians, the fashion designers, and yes, the broadcasters, who've struggled in various ways. Oscar Wilde once said, Life is a comedy for those who think, a tragedy for those who feel. He didn't choose to comment on what it's like for those of us who think about things and feel things very deeply. If you've listened to the biographical series that Glenn Gordon recorded with me, you'll already know that I've been on the radio since the age of four. I was a gregarious kid and, like many blind children, listened to the radio a lot. Also, like many blind kids, I absolutely loved playing with the telephone. So naturally, when a talk show was on that my mum would tune into regularly, everything just clicked into place. It was all in sync. I'd been taught how to dial the telephone with its rotary dial back then. I loved the radio, enjoyed an audience, and I'd learned to talk from a very early age. So one day it all came together and I called the radio station and before I knew it, I was going into the studio. It's funny how people often crave fame and despise it once they have it. I loved going into the radio station and I'd be so excited the night before that I could hardly sleep. When I was in the studio, I felt like I belonged there, and time went by so fast. I guess these days we would call that being in the zone. But there was a price to pay for that, and it was a pretty heavy one, actually. Once I started going to school, some of the kids resented the fact that I had this profile and they did not, and I get that. Teachers sometimes made caustic comments, and to be fair, as a child, it all may have given me a little bit of an attitude. Being a gregarious kid who was so well-known and who, as it turns out, was extremely sensitive, was not a good combination. Like many blind kids with non-24, I used to listen to the radio at all hours of the night when I couldn't sleep. And one day, I tuned into the talk station I featured on, only to hear a woman complaining about how precocious I was. I must have been about six or seven at the time, and I had no idea what that word meant so I had to ask a grown-up. It distressed me that, as my little self perceived it, a grown-up who didn't know me could call up and be so mean to me when so many people were listening to her. Another time, I tuned in to hear me being described as obnoxious. Even as a child, I was a bit of an activist as well. I remember trying to organise a boycott of the kitchen at the School for the Blind when kids complained consistently about the quality of the food they were getting, trying to encourage local parents to bring food into the kids who lived at the school until the problem was addressed. So all these things meant that from an early age, I had critics, many of whom were very vocal, and it affected me deeply as a child. Suffering abuse at the School for the Blind, something I cover in my discussions with Glenn in In the Arena, caused me to distrust authority and made me less gregarious than I once was. I became sure that most people didn't like me and weren't going to, which in a way spurred me on to being a high achiever. In my teens, the realisation that the world was full of misunderstanding about blind people, which translated into discrimination, sent me into a depression. I talk about these rather painful things because I think it's really common. Outwardly, people can appear to have it together and be really successful, while internally, they're experiencing a lot of turmoil and pain. It all meant that as an adult, I was having a very successful career while not being particularly happy or particularly together. 
As I said on the interviews I did with Glenn, it all came to a head on my youngest daughter's third birthday. I was on the other side of the world, travelling for work and still reeling from my first marriage breakup, wondering how the hell I was so far away from my little girl on her birthday, with all this upheaval going on in my life. While drinking a glass of wine and looking tearful, a woman sat down next to me in the bar at the hotel I was staying at, and she asked me what the matter was. I gave her the summary, and she told me that what I needed to do was to read a book called The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle, who I'd never heard of, and then she left. That encounter was so brief, so surreal, and so impactful that it sometimes feels like I imagined it. But I did get and read The Power of Now, and it captivated me instantly. In the book, Eckhart Tolle talks about an existential crisis in his life while he was contemplating suicide, where he decided that he couldn't live with himself any longer. And then he started to take that statement apart, wondering who is he and who is the self? Why did he view them as two separate things? It all sounds a bit nebulous, and some of his books don't speak to some people at all. But for me, it was exactly what I needed at that time. If I were to recommend an Eckhart Tolle book to a new reader, it would be A New Earth, which was published after The Power of Now, and which I think has a more digestible message. What Eckhart Tolle teaches isn't rocket science. It's essentially that the now, the present moment, this very moment that we're in as you hear this, is the only thing we have. And that, of course, is the key to what is now the very popular concept of mindfulness. Perhaps we all have different places where we're particularly lacking in mindfulness. For me, it used to be the shower. I'd be in the shower and I'd think about meetings I was going to be in that day or meetings I had the day before or some social media exchange or something that happened to me 15 years ago. And I'd think about all the things I should say or should have said or how annoyed I was by what someone else said even 15 years ago. And before I knew it, I'd been in the shower for 10 minutes and felt exhausted, remembering very little about the actual act of showering. I had wasted the time ruminating about an unalterable past or worrying about a future I couldn't control and which was most likely less bleak than I was envisaging. Sighted people tell me that it's common to lack mindfulness when they're driving. They go into autopilot, stressing about the past or the future, and remembering very little about the process of reaching their destination, which as a blind person, I have to say, I find pretty scary. Not only can lack of mindfulness be dangerous when you're not focusing on the task at hand, it can deprive you of enjoying the moment. That's important because... An imagined situation causes the same chemical responses as if it were real. When you dwell on a past experience that made you angry or unhappy or guilty or embarrassed, or you think about a situation that hasn't even happened yet and may not happen, but how it would make you feel, you generate stress responses that are just as harmful as if those things were happening now. Exposing yourself to a constant degree of negative stress is bad for you, and if it happens often enough, dangerous to your health. Eckhart Tolle also encourages us to focus on what we can control. Now, you can't control what others say or do, but we do have total control over how we choose to react and whether to respond at all. That's both a liberating and a challenging thing to internalize, particularly in the social media era. Hard though it is, if somebody who is trolling you on social media is genuinely not interested in meaningful dialogue, it's best to walk away, leave them to it, and potentially block them. And making that decision about when to do that is a challenging judgment call. We may have been born with or trained ourselves to respond in certain ways, not all of them in our best interests. But the brain is much more malleable than was once thought. It used to be the consensus that the older you get, the more difficult it is to change your brain and change your life. We've all heard the old saying about not being able to teach an old dog new tricks, right? In fact, 
neuroplasticity is possible at any age. You can teach yourself to think in new ways. You can form new habits. You have those choices. You have that control. I know it's a cliche, but cliches are often cliches because they're often true. Today really is the first day of the rest of your life. You have power over what happens next. And I find that incredibly invigorating. And while it's not easy, it's also possible to teach yourself not to dwell so much on what other people think of you. Now, that's not a license to be a dick. It's not a license to be completely lacking in empathy and do what you want. Obviously, if you are behaving in a way that upsets people that you care about or who you respect, then that requires some attention. But if you can look yourself in the virtual mirror, if you can say to yourself, I have done the best I could in this situation, If people criticize you for a stance that you have taken that you genuinely believe to be right and you have evidence for believing something to be true, then you can satisfy yourself by knowing that nothing great was ever achieved without having some critics along the way. And realizing that and internalizing that has made a huge difference in my own life. I'd like to say that I read Eckhart Tolle's book and experienced a dramatic and immediate personal transformation. But it wasn't that simple. The power of now got me curious during a period of crisis in my life. But I was still skeptical of anything that appeared too spiritual, too out there. Luckily, a blog I was reading at the time recommended a website called hypnosisdownloads.com, a site which is still going and which I still use. The material they produce is of good audio quality, and what interested me about the site was that they had a lot of science behind why hypnosis works. The idea that your brain could essentially have its software updated through positive suggestion, altering one's subconscious, fascinated me. I downloaded hypnosis sessions on things like handling criticism, dealing with difficult people, coping with guilt, and other things, and they helped me immensely. I still use hypnosis, find it beneficial, and I highly recommend it. It was thanks to hypnosisdownloads.com that I had a life-changing epiphany. It won't surprise you to know that I'm one of these tragics that enjoys reading the manuals for technology and other products that I own. Having paid for the thing, I want to be sure that I'm getting the most out of the investment. So I thought, Human beings don't come with a user manual, but there's a lot of material out there on living life well and making the most of the most powerful computer at my disposal, the organic one in my head. So why wasn't I paying the same attention to maximizing my time on Earth that I was to maximizing the use of the appliances I own? As a result of that, I began reading a lot on self-improvement, Emotional intelligence, including the books by Daniel Goldman, who invented the term meditation and ketogenic living, which, of course, I've covered in a previous episode last year. Because I like to understand how things that interest me work, I even studied to be and graduated as a clinical hypnotherapist, which I loved because it was so different from anything that I'd done before. Another major breakthrough was reading studies that showed how meditation physically changed the structure of the human brain. I read notes from a conference attended by some of the world's leading cognitive scientists and the Dalai Lama and other monks. That was what I personally needed to hear. Once I understood that there was scientific evidence proving that meditation had scientifically proven benefits to the human brain and physiology in general, I was ready to commit. So what do we know about the scientifically proven benefits of meditation? For this part of the show, I'm drawing heavily from an excellent page on the Healthline website, which I'll link to in the resources for this episode. Normally, Mental and physical stress cause increased levels of the stress hormone cortisol. This produces many of the harmful effects of stress, such as the release of inflammatory chemicals called cytokines. These effects can disrupt sleep, promote depression and anxiety, increase blood pressure, 
and contribute to fatigue and cloudy thinking. In an eight-week study, a meditation style called mindfulness meditation reduced the inflammation response caused by stress. So meditation can reduce stress levels, which translates to less anxiety. A meta-analysis, including nearly 1,300 adults, found that meditation may decrease anxiety. Notably, this effect was strongest for those with the highest levels of anxiety. One study also found that eight weeks of mindfulness meditation helped reduce anxiety symptoms in people with generalized anxiety disorder, along with increasing positive self-statement and improving stress reactivity and coping. Another study in 47 people with chronic pain found that completing an eight-week meditation program led to notable improvements in depression, anxiety, and pain over one year. Some research suggests that a variety of mindfulness and meditation exercises may reduce anxiety levels. Meditation may also help control job-related anxiety. One study found that employees who used a mindfulness meditation app for eight weeks experienced improved feelings of well-being and decreased stress and job strain compared with those in a control group. So if you think your job sucks, give meditation a go and see if it makes a difference. Many businesses now offer meditation courses. And in fact, you can read a book about Google's mindfulness practices. It's called Search Inside Yourself, and it's a very good read. Some forms of meditation can lead to improved self-image and a more positive outlook on life. For example, one review of treatments given to more than 3,500 adults found that mindfulness meditation improved symptoms of depression. Similarly, a review of 18 studies showed that people receiving meditation therapies experienced reduced symptoms of depression compared with those in a control group. Another study found that people who completed a meditation exercise experienced fewer negative thoughts in response to viewing negative images compared with those in a control group. Presumably we can extrapolate this to things communicated audibly as well. I think that's particularly true when we know that many blind people who've been blind from birth or for a long time, redeploy their visual cortex processing for other functions, and they're often auditory. One review of 27 studies showed that practicing Tai Chi may be associated with improved self-efficacy, which is a term used to describe a person's belief in their own capacity or ability to overcome challenges. In another study, 153 adults who used a mindfulness meditation app for just two weeks experienced reduced feelings of loneliness and increased social contact compared with those in a control group. So that's particularly relevant in the COVID-19 era. Additionally, experience in meditation may cultivate more creative problem-solving skills. Focused meditation is like weightlifting for your attention span. It helps increase the strength and endurance of your attention. For example, one study found that people who listened to a meditation tape experienced improved attention and accuracy while completing a task, compared with those in a control group. A similar study showed that people who regularly practiced meditation performed better on a visual task and had a greater attention span than those without any meditation experience. One review concluded that meditation may even reverse patterns in the brain that contribute to mind-wandering, worrying, and poor attention. Even meditating for a short period each day may benefit you. One study found that meditating for just 13 minutes daily enhanced attention and memory after eight weeks. Improvements in attention and clarity of thinking may help keep your mind young, Kirtan Kriya is a method of meditating that combines a mantra or chant with repetitive motion of the fingers to focus your thoughts. Studies in people with age-related memory loss have shown that it improves performance on neuropsychological tests. A review has also found preliminary evidence that multiple meditation styles can increase attention, memory and mental quickness in older volunteers. In addition to fighting normal age-related memory loss, Meditation can at least partially improve memory in patients with dementia. It can likewise help control stress and improve coping in those caring 
for family members with dementia. Some types of meditation can particularly increase positive feelings and actions towards yourself and others. Metta, a type of meditation also known as loving-kindness meditation, begins with developing thoughts and feelings towards yourself. Through practice, people learn to extend this kindness and forgiveness externally, first to friends, then to acquaintances, and ultimately enemies. A meta-analysis of 22 studies on this form of meditation demonstrated its ability to increase people's compassion towards themselves and others, and I must say this is one of my favorite forms of meditation. One study in 100 adults, randomly assigned to a program that included loving-kindness meditation, found that these benefits were dose-dependent. In other words, the more time you spent in weekly meta-meditation practice, the more positive feelings you'd be experiencing. Another study in 50 college students showed that practicing meta-meditation three times per week improved positive emotions, interpersonal interactions, and understanding of others after just four weeks. These benefits also appear to accumulate over time with the practice of loving-kindness meditation. The mental discipline you develop through meditation may help you break dependencies by increasing your self-control and awareness of triggers for addictive behaviors. Research has shown that meditation may help people to redirect their attention, manage their emotions and impulses, and increase their understanding of the causes behind their addictions. One study in 60 people receiving treatment for alcohol use disorder found that practicing transcendental meditation was associated with lower levels of stress, psychological distress, alcohol cravings, and alcohol use after three months. Meditation may also help you control food cravings. A review of 14 studies found mindfulness meditation helped participants reduce emotional and binge eating. And next, here's a benefit that will interest many blind people. One study compared mindfulness-based meditation programs and found that people who meditated stayed asleep longer and had improved insomnia severity compared with those who had an unmedicated control condition. Becoming skilled in meditation may help you control or redirect the racing or runaway thoughts that often lead to insomnia. Now, it is important to set expectations. For blind people with non-24, it's not going to magically cure that. But I have found that since I started meditating, I fall back to sleep a lot more readily. Next, let's talk about pain. Your percentage of pain is connected to your state of mind, and it can be elevated in stressful conditions. Some research suggests that incorporating meditation into your routine could be beneficial for controlling pain. For example, one review of 38 studies concluded that mindfulness meditation could reduce pain, improve quality of life, and decrease symptoms of depression in people with chronic pain. A large meta-analysis involving studies of nearly 3,500 participants concluded that meditation was associated with decreased pain. Meditators and non-meditators experience the same causes of pain, but meditators showed a greater ability to cope with pain and even experience a reduced sensation of pain. Meditation can also improve physical health by reducing strain on the heart. That's because over time, high blood pressure makes the heart work harder to pump blood, which can lead to poor heart function. High blood pressure also contributes to atherosclerosis or a narrowing of the arteries, which can lead to heart attack and stroke. A meta-analysis of 12 studies enrolling nearly 1,000 participants found that meditation helped reduce blood pressure. This was more effective among older volunteers and those who had higher blood pressure prior to the study. One review concluded that several types of meditation produced similar improvements in blood pressure. In part, meditation appeared to control blood pressure by relaxing the nerve signals that coordinate heart function, blood vessel tension, and the fight-or-flight response that increases alertness in stressful situations. Now, reading about even some of these scientific benefits, I decided to commit to giving meditation a serious try. So how do you actually meditate? When meditation springs to mind, people often conjure up these images of monks spending days in isolation chanting. 
the most common form of meditation in Western countries, and possibly everywhere actually, is simply to focus on your breathing. Initially, some people like to think of the words breathing in as they inhale and breathing out as they exhale to keep them focused. Sometimes it can be helpful to count the breaths going from 1 to 10 and then starting the count again. The most common myth about meditation that I hear is that if your mind isn't completely blank and devoid of any thoughts, you're failing at meditation. And in fact, that really does put people off even giving it a go. People say to me, I couldn't possibly meditate because I can't clear my mind. I can't keep it clear of thoughts. In fact, if you're conscious enough to notice that your mind has wandered, you are succeeding. You are meditating properly. You're not going to stop your mind. You can respond by simply noting that you've strayed from the task of focusing on your breath and bring your attention back to it. Other people use mantra-based meditation. Emily Fletcher is an American meditation teacher who was taught in India, and she has a great book and course on what she's called Ziva Meditation, which is mantra-based. There's no reason why you can't switch between various forms of meditation as the mood takes you. You don't need any special equipment or software. Some people like to use meditation cushions, while others sit up straight on a chair. You can meditate lying down, but there's a danger that you might drift off into a deep state of relaxation and go to sleep, which isn't what you want to happen. You're wanting to keep your mind sharp. If you have problems getting to sleep, many of the mindfulness apps on the market have excellent sleep inductions. My favorite is in the Calm app, where they have one on drifting off to sleep with gratitude, and I use that quite a bit. We're fortunate in that there are now several excellent and fully accessible meditation apps. I'm going to link to some of these in the resources for this episode, but if I had to recommend one, it would be 10% Happier. This was created by ABC journalist Dan Harris after a panic attack caused him to go looking for answers, and he discovered the life-changing benefits of meditation. He's written several books, one of which is called 10% Happier, and he reads the audio version of the book. They have a free podcast, which includes free meditations and some great interviews. The app is fully accessible, includes a range of courses from some of the world's leading meditation teachers, material that helps you sleep, and single meditations as well. Calm and Headspace are also worth honourable mentions. The father of Western mindfulness-based meditation is John Kabat-Zinn, and he also has a series of audio courses in the iOS app store, which are fantastic. So certainly use an app if that helps you get started. There are meditation groups on social media that you can join as well. Now, although meditation can help change the way you think, and therefore the way that you act, the idea isn't to turn you into an automaton. You're a human being with feelings, and those feelings are okay. If you experience a tragedy in your life, you will grieve. You may still be angry at times, and indeed there is a time for anger. But meditation will help you be more aware of your thoughts, to observe them objectively, and help you make better decisions about what to do with them. Meditation has been the key that has unlocked so many good things in my life. After I'd been meditating for a while, I just naturally lost interest in alcohol. The sense of well-being, of conviviality I got from meditating was way better than the effects of a couple of glasses of wine, plus it was cheaper and it didn't have any side effects. It's not that I've told myself not to drink it anymore, I just don't want to. The focus and mental discipline have helped me stick to a low-carb diet and, as I said in my episode on that subject, caused me to lose a lot of weight. My professional and personal relationships are better, and I'm able to separate the constructive criticism, which is intended as a gift with the best of intentions, from the non-constructive, which should be discarded, and goodness only knows, in the age of social media, there's an awful lot of that around. These days, I try to get 20 minutes of meditation in at the beginning and the end of my day. Sometimes I'll use one of my apps, other times I'll just sit in silence. But you can meditate anytime, anywhere, for any duration. 
Sometimes when I'm waiting for a meeting to start, whether I'm on a video call or waiting in someone's office, I meditate until they turn up. When I was flying a lot, I'd meditate on the plane. As I've meditated more, my focus and motivations changed. As you may know, I used to be a product manager in the IT field, and I went through a period where I, shall we say, misappropriated those skills. I was like a good product manager, and I made a list, kind of like a product defect database, of all of the things that were wrong with me that I felt I needed to fix. That's what many meditation teachers refer to as the drill sergeant approach. That drill sergeant is what drives many people to make New Year's resolutions, 90% of which lapse in the early part of the year. As I've read and meditated more, I've had to come to grips with one of the toughest things on this journey, self-love. And to be honest, even now, I still feel a bit uncomfortable using that term in public. It sounds egotistical and self-centered. But I started feeling better about it when I realized that it's really about treating yourself like you would treat a good friend or one of your children. When a friend does something that they're not proud of or is feeling down, I'm guessing you probably showed that friend some compassion. You reminded them what a decent person they are. You encouraged them not to be hard on themselves. You offered gentle reassurance. Yet so often, we are very hard on ourselves. For many of us, it must be said that if we talked to others the same way we talk to ourselves, the way we won't forgive ourselves, the way we won't acknowledge the progress that we've made, we would have no friends at all because we would be the most unpleasant, snarky, judgmental person to know. So we'd be friendless. So rather than channeling our inner drill sergeants, by saying that we must lose weight because we're a big, fat, ugly slob, what if we said something different like, I want to grow old healthy and happy and be here for those I love and who, I'm very fortunate to say, love me. I deserve that. They deserve that. Losing weight doesn't mean I'm not perfect just as I am in this moment, but it's a gift I can give myself to improve my quality of life even more. Perhaps it might seem like a subtle thing to some, but the why, the motivation, makes a big difference. Another practice that has helped me immensely is the keeping of a gratitude journal. At the end of each day, I note 10 things that happened to me today or people I experienced that I'm grateful for. To those of us who are advocates, who seek to make positive change in the world, and or who face a lot of discrimination because we're a member of a minority, this can help us maintain perspective. It doesn't mean we can't and shouldn't strive for a better life, but sometimes the challenges we face drown out the positive. The things we put in our gratitude journal can be as simple as a roof overhead, food on the table, or having someone who appreciates us in our lives. One question that doesn't apply to me, but which I do get asked quite a bit, is whether there's a conflict with being Christian, or perhaps observing one of the traditional monotheistic faiths, since meditation is often associated with Buddhism and other Eastern traditions. The good news is that there's absolutely no conflict at all here. One of the things I appreciate about meditation as an atheist is that no one has to worship anything, but equally, It doesn't preclude you from incorporating it into your existing religious beliefs. An increasing number of churches are including meditation now, using such terms as contemplative prayer. I often hear one thing said about both meditation and regular exercise over and over, and it is so true. If you could get all these benefits by taking a pill, Meditation and exercise would be the most wildly popular drugs on the planet. I wish you luck if you want to give meditation a try, and I look forward to learning about how it goes. And if you meditate already, then please let us know about your practice and what benefits you've experienced. I've assembled an extensive list of resources, including books, apps, and websites, 
It's too long to include in the show notes, so I've set up a simple way for you to receive them. You can simply send an email to meditation at mosen.org. That's meditation at M-O-S-E-N dot org. It's an automated system, so it doesn't matter what you put in the subject line or the message body. Because it's automated, no one, including me, gets to see that you've asked for the resources. You'll get an auto-response email containing all the resources that I hope will assist you on your meditation and self-improvement journey. Jonathan and listeners to the most and large very, very good morning, afternoon, or evening. Gerard here from Mexico. Gerardo here from you guys. Very interesting topic, which I'm sure will be covered about mindfulness and blindness. I never studied any mindfulness or meditation with a teacher or with or with people certified in such areas, but I have been very interested over the years in this topic. And I have even applied what I have been gleaning from this research on my life. And really, you find that you have very subtle changes. For example, in my case, before I used to be very impulsive in terms of of being angry or frustrated easily. But since a few weeks ago, I have been noticing little by little that I have been more more tolerant of, of frustrations and my brain seems to be working uh, more in ways that I had never realized before. Like I tend to to be more grateful. Gratitude is very important as well. It's a for me. It's a part of mindfulness. So really, if you guys have not been like um, have been kind of afraid to to practice, I hope that. The resources I will pass along for you guys will help you guys. It's a very, very life-changing experience. One of the books that has helped me in this journey is called Regarded to Diaries by Jane Kaplan. It's available on the USS NLS bar for those of you guys in the States. I'm sure it's on Audible as well. I haven't checked. Regarded to Diaries by Jane Kaplan is very, very good. Another one which I have pending to read, I haven't read it yet, but I am going to. There's a book by John Kabat-Zinn. The one that I plan on starting to read it, I, I, it's called Meditation for Beginners. That is not on board, but it is on Audible. And there is also another one that I have just put on the body wish list. I don't recall the title, but it's something about uh, ma- mindfulness for every day or some, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure of the name, but it's too by, by John Kabat-Zinn. There's also a very neat blog on the internet. It's called Tiny Buddha. It's a blog where you get an article daily about uh, mindfulness and, and uh, how it has changed people's lives. So really give that a follow. So, again, very interesting topic. I'm sure mindfulness and meditation will will um, be covered. And congrats on your podcast and on your show that it gets better and better every day. Greetings from Mexico, and we will continue to be in touch. Well, thank you so much. I'm glad you're enjoying the podcast and mindfulness. It is true that if you can think about the emotions that you're experiencing and almost look at them as if you weren't, as if you are analyzing it from a third person's point of view and say, what is this thing I'm feeling? What's its cause? How do I deal with it? And I mean, it's not an instant thing. That takes a lot of practice. And sometimes we're just going to go back to the intuitive way that we've always thought about these things. But when you do that often enough with your own emotions, it does start to translate to thinking about the way that others are behaving. And when that happens, it does affect in a positive way your interpersonal relationships. I also agree with you that the mindfulness for beginners, reclaiming the present moment and your life, I think is the full title by John Kabat-Zinn is a good book. And it is included along with the Tiny Buddha website, which is also a very good blog 
on the meditation resources list, which you can access by sending a blank email or an email with anything in it, really, because the subject and body are ignored, to meditation at mosin.org. And to get you started, I've put together a little mindfulness meditation practice. If you are listening to this, then please be sure to be doing so when you're not concentrating on anything else. You should be upright on a couch somewhere or sitting on the floor somewhere where you're comfortable, but definitely not out and about. For those listening on the podcast, this is how it will end. There'll be no closing music this time or anything like that. The meditation will just peter out. And if you want to continue meditating, you are welcome to do that. Now I invite you to join me in a meditation. If you've never done this before, there's no way that you can get meditation wrong. Settle back with no expectations. Ideally positioned in a way that keeps you alert. Sitting upright, perhaps in a chair or on a cushion or on the floor. And allow whatever happens to happen. First, draw your attention to your breath. Take a full, long breath in. Focusing on your breath, breathe all the way out. It might help if your mind is wandering to count the breaths. Breathe in. Breathe out and count one. Once again, breathe in. And on the out breath, count two. Return your breath to normal and know that there is nowhere else you need to be. Nothing that you need to do. This time is yours. Take enjoyment from the fact that you are breathing, that you are alive, that you are here now. If your mind wanders from the breath, just gently bring yourself back to the present moment and the breath. And to help you focus, periodically I ring a bell. When you hear the bell, if your mind has wandered to the tasks you need to do, or to things that are on your mind, don't chastise yourself. Simply bring your attention back to your breath. And be here now.
as you continue to focus on your breath. Be mindful that you are the only person over whom you have full control. For there to be peace in the world, we all must find peace in ourselves. So as you continue to focus on your breath, say to yourself, without saying it out loud, May I be happy. May I be safe. May I be at peace. May I be happy. May I be safe. May I be at peace. May I be happy. May I be safe. May I be at peace. And now as our meditation comes to a close, if your eyes have naturally closed, open them now. Be mindful of the sounds and the smells around you. And bring your attention fully back to the present, ready to face whatever life may bring. <laughs> 